Welcome to episode 93, Excelling in Telehealth with Children and Teens, the Structure, Interventions, and Legal Ethical Considerations, featuring Ariel Landrum, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, by Clearly Clinical. Learn. Grow. Shine. Hello to our listeners. Today we are joined by Ariel Landrum. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified art therapist, and she's also the clinical director of Guidance Teletherapy. She works outside of Los Angeles, California, and Ariel's specialization is doing telehealth with kids and adolescents. Ariel, thank you so much for joining us today and shedding some light on this topic that is quite a challenge for many of us, particularly right now during the pandemic. Thank you for having me, Beth. This is really exciting. Um, so why don't you start by telling us how you came to have this specialization in working with kids via teletherapy? I know you do lots of trainings on the topic. Um, so tell us about your background and how you came to be an expert in this. Absolutely. So um, I've been actually working in the mental health field since 2008, but I got licensed in 2015. And around the time that I got my license is also the time where I got a contract uh, with the Navy to work with um, active duty sailors and their families. Um, and I found that the largest struggle with that population was the lack of continuity of care. And as someone who also grew up with the military with a father in the Navy, like I understood that you move every two to three years. So it's hard to maintain and establish a therapeutic alliance. Uh, And so because the contract um, was a federal one, I was allowed to see people across state lines. Um, And so what ended up happening was I started taking as many trainings and learning as much as I could about teletherapy so that I could continue providing services or at least continuity of care as they transition to another provider. Uh, And that really helped establish, maintain, and and just give the proper treatment to um, these service members and their family members. Um, Oftentimes, the service members would have me see their, their children Uh, And that's where I started gaining more specialization working with children and teens because of the struggle of um, having to move constantly and learning to adjust and adapt to new environments. And then for myself being a dependent, I understood the the feelings around fear and, and, and uncertainty about your parents' job. Got it. So for you, it's really understanding how this is affecting children when they need to move frequently and how that lack of continuity of care means that they probably don't hold on to their treatment gains the same way that a child who could have that consistency would be able to. Absolutely. I, uh, you saw it not even in just the therapy room, but also just in the schooling. Um, if you had to transition from on-based or off-based school, so the, the curriculum was completely different. Um, well, right now, we're in a very unique situation that um, many of us, I mean, are, are, are not, we're not prepared for, which is a rapid move to telehealth. And I would love to kind of hear from you, your perspective, because so many of us, myself included, have been really challenged by taking our child and adolescent clients and and moving to an online platform. Um, Before we launch into some of your expertise and interventions and setting the frame and safety factors, I'd like to hear from you, like, what do you think providers need to hear right now about this transition to doing child and adolescent therapy over the internet? I think what providers need to hear is that um, they have a lot of fear and anxiety around the idea of working with kids online, but that really that that fear and anxiety is just that the, it looks different or feels different. Um, a lot of the therapeutic gains and strengths and knowledge that we have is applicable to working with youth and, and working with children online. There's not a lot of interventions that we use in person that involves, you know, touching 
uh, a youth. Oftentimes, if they're dysregulated, if they're upset, we use our calming voice, we, we use distractions, we remind them of their coping skills, we use breathing techniques, we mirror them, we use all of these bag of tricks that we already have. And those are the same ones that you can use on a digital platform. It looks a little different. There's a screen in front of you, but it even though it's different, it doesn't mean it's ill-effective or that you're ill-effective. In fact, there are other things that now you can use to be even more effective. So it sounds like from your perspective, it's really a matter of believing that we're going to be as effective doing online therapy with children and teens. And also we we did a podcast um, last month where we actually talked about some of the outcomes of telehealth when compared to face-to-face. And as stunted or as jumpy as it might feel for us, the outcomes are actually very, very, very similar. And in fact, sometimes they're exactly the same. Um, so for those of you who are listening, know that um, the outcomes of telehealth, we actually can be as effective and we often are as effective on telehealth as we are in person. Um, So Ariel, so much to cover today. Why don't we start by just kind of hearing how uh, providers can help set the frame when working with child and adolescent clients via telehealth. I know I've seen questions on social media about like parents walking into the room and um, how do we keep a kid safe? What if someone uh, refuses to talk? And what if we think they might be self-harming? Like all of these things are coming up. please share your insight on how we address and manage some of these kind of frame and safety factors. Absolutely. So of course, just like any other form of therapy or medium that we provide it, we have to talk about the risks and benefits where we're legally obligated and ethically obligated. So we need to prepare the youth and and the parents that um, some of the benefits of teletherapy is that you have more flexibility with your scheduling. You're obviously um, protected right now uh, from any face-to-face contact or or any spread uh, from the uh, pandemic. And, And then of course, the fact that you are within your home. If home is a safe space, if it's a comfortable place, if it's a place that you feel um, connected and cared for, then you're already in an environment where you feel safe and your provider's being invited into that environment. Um, you'll see a lot of the same sort of experience as someone who does in-home therapy, that, that sort of real genuine connection in your comfortable space. But then you do have to talk about the risks. And, you know, unlike in person, the risks involve the actual internet um, or, or phone. If your client has a data plan that is very limited, you may only be able to see them more in the beginning of the month than the end because they're running out of uh, data and, and they can't call you or talk to you. Um, if you're talking about the internet video conferencing, there's glitches with sound and with video. Um, and oftentimes, if you're not used to that, the cadence may be different. Whereas an in-person, if you are sitting there thoughtfully and quiet, (laughs) that can be seen as being thoughtful and quiet. Um, Or when you're doing that online, it might be like, did you freeze? Can you hear me? Are you there? Um, And so that can be a very jarring and and it can sort of really affect the flow. So really considering and and for yourself, considering like shifting some of the things that are your normal therapeutic go-tos and that may not be effective on the phone or, or with a screen. Um, and, 
when you're thinking about some other legal and ethical issues, you have to think about the space. You have to know where the client is. So you have to know their location. But oftentimes, especially with maybe youth who are self-harming or known to self-harm, I will have them pan the camera around the room. I'll say, spin me around the room and let me see what, what you see. And especially let me see what's on your desk. And that lets me know if there's any potential self-harming objects that I need them to remove or that you know a parent needs to remove. It also lets me know if there's any drug paraphernalia or anything that could be used to uh, use substances. Um, and that's that's something that, you know, in in-person therapy, you probably don't have to deal with as much. Uh, and so just really making sure that the space is safe. Something else is if you have a client or you believe you will have a client who is easily dysregulated, you have to be aware of how their door locks. If they can lock their door, does anyone have a key to it so that they can come in if, if you need them to help that youth? Also, which way does the door swing? Can they prop a chair against the door? These are real things that youth will do when they're angry. Um, as a parent, you've probably seen that happen before. And so it's a lot scary for the provider over the screen when they can't get uh, someone in the room to assist the youth. So really setting the framework involves talking about things that, that you expect to see and things that you are hoping will not happen, but to be prepared. That's a conversation you have to have with the parent. It's a conversation you have to have with the youth, depending on their age. Um, other things that you're going to have to consider are privacy. So I have a privacy agreement with family members or roommates um, that if they're privy that the individual is in therapy, they sign uh, agreeing not to barge into the room, agreeing not to knock on the door, agreeing not to watch movies or stream uh, video games during the session to steal internet. And those agreements are made uh, out of trust and respect, and that the only time they're allowed to disrupt the session is if there's safety concerns. Um, and then the final thing is really looking at the space and talking with the client about the space to maintain privacy. Some of our families are in apartments. Some of our families are in studio apartments with no, no bedroom. Uh, so really talking about where can we find some privacy? Does it mean that we wear headphones and if they're older, you type and I talk? Uh, does it mean going into the bathroom in the bathtub and playing pirate? Like that's a door that can close, then we can get some privacy. Does it mean going in the car? If there's a carport or garage. Finding those spaces where you can still be accessible to each other. Everybody knows where someone is, but there's privacy and there's a feeling of privacy. I would also like to note that um, if anybody has an Alexa or an Echo Dot or cameras in the home to really talk about, you know, unplugging or shutting those off during the session, uh, because there are some times where parents will, you know, out of concern, listen in on the session through those devices um, uh, with the cameras or that a session's accidentally recorded with uh, Alexa or Echo Dot. And that can really put a huge rupture in the relationship. You just covered some very important points. Um, gosh, there were so many things that you just said that I think are are worthy of discussion and, and exploration. I think your point about the safety factors, considering whether or not the person has any access to anything with which they could self-harm, and also are they in a room where a parent can't get in, um, those are certainly considerations that we wouldn't have to face at our office. I mean, even what you just said about um, the privacy issue with something like Echo Dot or Alexa, these are very good points. Um, when it comes to talking with families about the frame of therapy, do you, just out of curiosity, do you do that in a formal therapy session with a family or do you 
do that kind of in a check-in with the parents? How do you frame that? And also, does it change on the age of the child? So it's in my informed consent. And the way I do paperwork is I actually present it to the family before the session so they can fill it all out um, and allows them. uh, I usually do it a day or even two days ahead so that they can really examine and read it. Um, I have a lot of uh, high functioning families that um, really want to read every line. (laughs) Um, And so it's in my informed consent about what privacy looks like and some of the things that I'm going to ask. It's definitely in my free 15 minute consultation, just asking questions about their internet bandwidth um, and and what their expectations about therapy and online therapy is and and really normalizing some of the um, potential risks and some of the expectations and and the benefits. Um, And then I, depending on the age of the child, I will have a prep session with family member there. Um, And uh, if they're a younger child, I have a puppet and I share pro-social behaviors and and I talk about things that we do um, online uh, and things that we don't do online. Uh, For younger kids, you know, they're more impulsive. If I'm hot, I'm going to take my shirt off. So I talk about, no, you don't have to do that when we're in online. Or I have to go to the bathroom and you're in a portable device. You're going to go to the bathroom with me. No, you can leave me here. Um, those are things that, you know, we, again, it's more likely not to expect an in-person. If a kid says they need to go potty, we just let them go to the bathroom. They don't take us with them. Um, and if a kid is getting hot, we can put a fan on. But, you know, oftentimes they, they are more impulsive and think that way. Um, so I really address that both with the client and with the parent, because I don't want the parent to think that anything inappropriate is happening. So I want them to know that, you know, oftentimes younger kids do these things and they're like, oh, yeah, he runs around in his underwear all the time. So um, just really talking about, okay, you know, that's fun that he does that. But when session starts, we have to put our clothes on. I'm certainly think we normally would not have in a conversation with a child. Usually, usually, sometimes yes, but usually not. Um, So it sounds like for you, it's a really interactive kind of involved process to keep the parents on board. And for the younger kiddos, I can hear the benefit in that. I can also see how things may get a little more tenuous with older adolescent clients. Um, I know for my adolescent clients, when they could come into my office, it was so... Um, intentional that it was a safe space, you know, that what's said here stays here, unless obviously it's something that necessitates the breaking of, of privacy and confidentiality, but that now you have to involve parents in a different way to keep in mind those factors that you just named a moment ago, you know, about whether or not the door locks a certain way. Um, what are any other kind of legal or ethical issues that come to mind um, in terms of safety? Like it, uh, you said, knowing the location of the client, is that something that you're documenting in your clinical documentation every time you see somebody? Like, tell us kind of the the process of how you make sure you're uh, checking the boxes, so to speak, with every session you have with a child or adolescent that's, that's um, not in your office. Absolutely. So I do um, put in every single session note that I have confirmed their location and that it is either uh, the same location placed in intake. So in my intake paperwork, there's an actual place where you put your address of location or that it's different in what that address is. Um, And I also note that the client verbally um, confirmed that they felt uh, safe and that they were able to speak openly and confidentially. Um, uh, and then I, I also um, note a code word. So I have a code word that I create with each client. Um, and that lets me know if someone's walked in the room and that I need to stop talking. And when they use the code word again, that means I can start talking again. Um, if they use that code word and and then they use it again, so twice in a row, it means that we have to hang up and, and switch um, and no longer do session. Um, 
that often occurs because uh, there was an unexpected visit, like with a grandparent or, or another family member um, that isn't aware that they're in therapy or that um, a, a friend has come over and they want to play with them. Um, and we've talked about how you can invite your friend into the online session with me. So using that code word lets me know that, okay, we need to, we need to discontinue. And then I, I let the parent know via phone call or text. Oftentimes the parent has already notified me uh, before the code word even gets used, but there are sometimes that, you know, we have unplanned or unexpected visitors. Um, and, and it's really meaningful for me to be able to allow the youth to enjoy their day. Um, those aren't disruptions that you would see in in-person therapy, but if you attempt to try and continue the online therapy, they're going to be distracted. They want to see who's ever in the house. They want to do something with that person. And it'll be just not effective. Um, that's a very good point. Another question I have, when you have younger clients, so you have more parental involvement, knowing that with child clients, oftentimes, the parents are involved more than they would be with adolescent clients. Um, and now we have parents that are home that may be working from home that are balancing responsibilities of their children. How do you as a therapist kind of roll with that when you say, set the intention for the session that the parent or multiple caregivers are going to be with the child and you're going to do this therapy session and then the baby starts crying or mom has a conference call or whatever it is. How, how do you alter um, the frame in this particular circumstance of the pandemic? Because pretty much all of our lives one way or another are upside down. Mm -hmm. Well, I, at first, I always have a conversation that a parent needs to be home and accessible. Um, even before the pandemic, some parents get the idea that, you know, someone's watching my kids so I can go do something or go grocery shop or or, or go do laundry or, or go wash ditches. Um, and, I, and I remind them that uh, sometimes we do movement interventions and your child can't get up and off the chair without your assistance, they'll, they'll hurt themselves. Or sometimes I use puppets and that's really exciting for little ones and they wanna grab the screen, they wanna grab the monitor, they wanna get close to the puppet. So having you uh, accessible is really important in, in maintaining the safety uh, of, the, of the session. Um, I, I talk about really um, what the youth's day looks like, how many hours have they been for online school, especially now, um, and then what your, your day looks like. Because if you're working on um, conference calls, if you're having back-to-back -back meetings, uh, and there's nobody there to be able to help me or uh, with the youth, we either need to find a different time or you may need to find another clinician because the, the main thing is, is safety. And uh, if I can't maintain the safety of the client, then I, I can't really do the treatment effectively. Um, and, and talking about, let's say the session goes 100% fine. To me, it wasn't you know clinically fine because the back of my mind was just looking for all the alarm bells. So I wasn't as present and as attuned as that my client needed. And so sometimes I will have uh, parents be in the room, but sit in the back with headphones on and put their phone on on a hotspot so they're not taking any bandwidth away. And and they're doing something on the computer or, or I mean, something on the phone and, and really um, whatever they need to get done, but they're accessible. I can text them because they have their phone on them um, and they can pretty much see with their peripheral what their, what their little one is doing. Um, sometimes I talk about, you know, the do we need to shorten the session with the little one and, and do more parent training um, and, and, you know, or do we need to do anything joint? Um, if I've already assessed and there's no um, potential abuse or sexual abuse, you know, can the youth sit on their lap and 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 do the activity with them and in, in front of me with the screen? Um, really talking about just uh, the 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 physicalness and the nearness of whoever's going to be guarding the youth. And then, of course, sometimes 
you know, especially now we're having different people come in the home to help with uh, caregiving. So of course, really getting a new release of information and training that person on what to expect, what to do and what to see. I appreciate all of the points you're bringing up because they're all worthy of consideration. And you as someone who's been doing this for a while has had to encounter these challenges. And for those of us that are new to it, seeing things that we've never seen before and never really thought that we would have an issue with. Um, one of the other points that you made, and I've heard other experts as well that we've talked to speak to the importance of offering flexibility with sessions. Um, and what I mean is, you know, do you do a shorter session than you normally would? Because I mean, I know I've had adolescent clients, they've been staring at a screen already for four and a half, six hours, and they are done. And there's no way that 50 minutes is going to be meaningful for them. But doing a 25 minute seems doable. And I think um, reminding providers that they have the flexibility to do that if it feels clinically appropriate, um, because we're we're kind of in this um, unknown area that we're working with clients in a way that many of us have not before and don't necessarily know what a child or adolescent's attention span is going to be, um, especially with when they've been staring at a screen all day and they're just fried. Yes, yes. That, I mean, that really goes back to the connection with the parent. Like, are you asking them before session, what happened during the day? Because when the screen turns on, uh, you know, I don't know if they just had a fight with a sibling. Usually on the way to the office, there's some simmering down, there's some time to think, and then there's uh, them venting to me. But I've walked in on this. I'm, I'm in literally in their home. They're going to um, have more experiences with with frustration with parents that they just want to you know yell and scream and make sure the parent can hear how angry they are and they told their therapist. You know, so so really checking in with the um, the guardian and and asking you know um, have they eaten? Um, did did they take a nap? Really finding out what happened before session so I I'm better armed to to be able to help. The youth. When you do that, I can see the value in having that conversation sometimes privately with the parent. Do you include that as part of your session time? And so do you see it, you know, if you have a session starting at 10 a.m., do you see it as talking to the parents for five or 10 minutes and then you start seeing the child at 10 10? Mm -hmm. How do you manage time in that case? I do include it in session time and it's part of the prep that I do in the beginning. Um, and it's usually only when I'm getting to know and build rapport. So this is a brand new client. I'm unaware of what their um, home life is. Uh, and I, I haven't learned that much information and I don't really know their schedule. Maybe the first two or three sessions, I will do a 10 or 15 minute check-in with parent, um, either uh, with the video screen or just on the phone um, and, and ask just those, those questions. Eventually I will start to notice the pattern that the youth has for their lifestyle um, and, and I'll be able to better address it. And because we've built more rapport, they're going to want to talk to me and share with me. Um, and so then I can find out about their day. Uh, and then it's only the parent really reaching out to me to just, you know, give me what they, what we call the warning. So just the warning, this happened today. Um, and that's, that's usually an email or a text or a quick phone call um, and doesn't get included in the session time. Thank you for kind of breaking that down. So why don't we transition? Let's start talking about interventions. I mean, I think therapists are struggling so much with what to do. Why don't we start by talking about interventions for use with younger children, and then we'll move on to interventions for use with older children with adolescents. Um, so please share your wisdom on this topic when we're sitting there staring at a computer screen going, I don't know what to do right now. So um, with younger children, I often start the session off with a movement exercise. 
uh, and I check with the parent uh, or guardian to see if the if the room is safe or if they're able to get up and off the chair. You know, depending on what device they're using, um, they they may need to they may be against a wall like myself and therefore can't do as many like full body movements, um, or you know they have the space of an entire living room. Um, so uh, I start the session off with a movement exercise, and we do something like Simon Says, or we play charades um, or uh, I play the hokey pokey song and we do the hokey pokey or with really younger kids uh, I will do baby shark which is a, a lot of fun um, for kids that have a lot of energy I'll do a fast dance movement exercise like um, peanut butter jelly time uh, and those are all things that you can find the songs and the movements on YouTube you can screen share if you're using video and um, follow along with the prompts and you can do it with the youth to help mirror uh, or you can have the youth do it themselves. But the great thing about the movement exercise is that, you know, they're going to spend the rest of the session probably sitting. Um, and if they get as much energy out as they can, they're less likely to fidget in the chair. They're less likely to get up and walk away. Um, uh, and, and they're more likely to, to be able to sustain some attention. Got it. I really like that idea of starting with something movement-based, trying to get their wiggles out, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, and, and help them... Um, I'd say transition is really what you're talking about. You're, it's part of setting the frame then is like, this is what we do in the beginning and then we calm down and, and kind of find the rhythm. So we've done a movement exercise that we've done baby shark and now it's stuck in our heads ad nauseum. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, then what are some interventions that you find to be really helpful with kids? Because I know in my experience, the things that we would normally be able to do in session, some of them we just can't um, when we're online. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, what may be a powerful silence when you're sitting in the same room with somebody, um, when you say, how are you doing? And then you <laughs> sit in silence. It's like, are you still there when you're online? Um, so please go, go through your, your encyclopedia, <laughs> some of your favorite interventions. So for, for littles again, um, it's, it's puppets. They, they really do like puppets. And the great thing about, you know, depending on the software that you're using, if you're using zoom, you can change your background and that makes it even more interactive. And you don't even have to be on the screen. You're obviously there, uh, but what they see is the puppet and they're going to engage with the puppet. Um, and then maybe you join in the screen later and like, Oh my goodness, you guys are in session. Um, it's a lot of, fun and, and and again just being mindful of um if they're grabbing onto to the monitor or trying to pull the device closer to engage with the puppet but um that's that's a huge just rapport building exercise um and and will instantly you know grab the youth um for other sort of younger exercises and interventions um i have them grab their objects so so you know, you're in their space, you are surrounded by the things they love, have them show you those things, have them um, show you the things that you've made in session. If you had been meeting with them in person, you've probably made comfort objects, you've probably made talking sticks, you've probably used all these things that they got to take home, see where they put them. And if they have forgotten about them, re-engage with those objects, remind them why they took those home to be able to, to play with. Um, ask them about their comfort space or their comfort object. Do you have a favorite teddy? Do you have a blankie? Let me see it. How do you use it? When do you use it? Do you share with your sibling with it or is it all yours and they have their own? and really comment on the things you see in their background. Do you see posters, uh, uh, musical artists? Do they have you know favorite songs they like to sing? Do you see cartoon characters or movies? What, what have they been watching over and over that's driven their parents nuts? You know, like let them sing those songs. 
that is really engaging. Um, and it, you know, it, it's helpful if you're someone who's non-directive, but it's very helpful because you're being slightly directive. When you're online, you know, you have to be more directive because you don't know what objects they have, um, what the, what resources and accessibility they have. So really helping guide uh, the session it includes, you know, pointing out the things that you're seeing. Uh, you know, a lot of times our youth have pets. Ask about them. Ask how they take care of them. Let them show you them on screen. Talk about where they like to be petted and talk about, you know, the physical comfort we get in a hug. Really use those things in their world to help um, immerse an understanding of safety and, and incorporate it into your treatment goals. I like that idea of really kind of focusing on rapport building is what you're doing on trying to understand the client's worldview a little bit better because I mean, I, so I have a five-year-old and a one-year-old and their, their content, right. Or contact right now with family members is based online. Um, and, and that's new, you know, while we used to do a FaceTime or a Skype session with mm -hmm. grandma and grandpa or whatever, um, now it's different for them to engage on online. And I can, see the importance of as a mm -hmm. therapist kind of slowing down. And if you were working with a child beforehand and you had the rapport established, now kind of having to rebuild online and taking the advantage of learning this child's world when they're not sitting on your couch. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel that the struggle that um, a lot of providers are facing right now, um, which is slightly different than the, the struggle that I had to face, is that I was building relationships online. They only knew therapy with me online. Um, and uh, so the transition of I have trust with you and now we're in this new environment feels different. Different doesn't mean bad. It just means not the same. So really normalizing and validating like, yeah, it feels weird to just see each other in video and you not be in my therapy room. I, I understand that that's unusual. Um, and and re having to rebuild the trust, rebuild the rapport, it may be surprising or shocking for a provider um, under the assumption that they had enough money in the bank, even if they've been seeing the client for a year or two years. So talking about, you know, disruptions and changes happen in therapy all the time, in person or out person, you know, so being online is that same thing. It's a disruption. And now we're, we're, we're it's not a rupture. It's just a disruption. And we're trying to flow with it, change with it and grow with it. I think that reframe is really important because I think um, this transition can feel so hard and abrupt. And I've heard from clinicians, you know, I've been working with somebody and now it feels like our treatment gains have been lost or the rapport is gone. And I, I think the reframe that you just contributed was really important, which is this is, this is kind of a hiccup. And and I can also see the value in um, applying this to the world at large. What do we do when things are rolling along just fine and then something changes? How do we roll with it and work with it and try to maximize what's in front of us, even though basically the rules have changed? And that's what we as providers have gone through. That's what clients have gone through. Like we had rules of the world, turns out a lot of them don't apply right now and they're not going to apply for a while. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, so you talked about movement exercises with the little kids. You talked about, you know, um, involving the use of puppets or uh, having them speak about their environment. What about art supplies? Like, do you have parents set out art supplies for kids before the session begins? How do you do that? What about books? Like, what are some um, activities that you do with younger kids that include supplies at home or that you have? 
So I do try to find out what supplies they have um, currently. Again, uh, I don't know the um, population that most people are working with, but there are a lot of disenfranchised, you know, disadvantaged individuals. Um, they may not have crayons or coloring materials. They may have one pen in the house um, or just highlighters that they gathered from the office. Um, so really finding out what materials they have and, and uh, crafting the interventions around those materials, because it can be very disheartening for um, a youth to try and do something with you and find out they can't because they don't have it. Um, I do know some providers who are sending items to family members, so that's a consideration. Um, but uh, for the most part, finding out what they already have um, as materials. So I, the, some of the art interventions that I will do if they do have materials is um, I will have uh, what we call the control exercise. So they'll have a, a piece of paper with um, crayons or, or a pen or a pencil, and I have them trace their hands, both, both hands, left and right. We talk about which hand is your dominant hand, which hand do you use to catch things? Okay, so that's the hand that controls things. Um, so we talk about what in your world do you have uh, control over? Um, so what you can wear, um, what, you, what you eat, um, uh, what you, how you brush your wear your hair. Uh, those are things you're in control of. Um, what are the things that you aren't in control of? What your your bedtime, because your parent tells you to, when you get to leave the house, particularly now, um, you know, uh, what class you're in. And, and we talk about, you know, um, both hands work together. Um, one hand uh, isn't as dominant as the other one, but they help support each other. So these things that you aren't in control of, um, why are they been established that way? And how do they help you? Why, why is it okay? Well, I'm not going out. We'll make sure that I don't get sick. Um, uh, my bedtime is, is established because that's, I need to get a lot of rest. Um, and, and so really, you know, talking about um, that sometimes the things that we aren't in control of doesn't mean that it's bad for us or that, that um, now we are out of control. Um, what, what it means is that uh, we are, are abdicating or stepping back or, or allowing help or, or allowing things to be established for us that are good for us. So that, that's one of the exercises I do. And then if they don't have any materials, I use, but they do have the computer and we do have the camera. Um, I use the annotation feature on uh, my software, or you can get a digital whiteboard, just type in free digital whiteboard, and they use their mouse to trace their hands. And I'll have them hover the hand over the monitor. I tell them, don't touch the screen, just hover it. Um, and they trace their hands and we do the exact same exercise and they'll um, type out or I'll type for them if they uh, don't have um, as many uh, linguistic abilities or ability uh, to, to write. Um, and I'll write out all the things or, or I'll have them draw um, with the mouse. It really helps with fine motor skills. Uh, and it's a way to utilize, um, again, the items or the softwares that you have access to and they do as well. Um, and you'll find that most younger clients have a lot of mastery with the mouse because they're very used to a computer. They're very used to a digital device. If you're on a tablet, that's even better because they can use their hand to trace their hand or they can use a stylus. So um, that's that's a great exercise. Um, I also have, depending on how the client comforts themselves, comfort objects near them. And sometimes a comfort object is, is a pen and paper or crayon so that they can doodle while we're, we're sharing and talking, um, especially if they're getting overstimulated and they need to sort of refocus on their world and, and their present environment. Those are some really great ideas. Um... I can hear with the hand one, of course, that wouldn't work with phones. For people that need to be doing telehealth on their phone for clients, um, are there any specific considerations? I mean, obviously, some interventions like the one you just listed wouldn't be doable. But I know some of my clients, there is only one computer in the home. 
maybe not even a computer in the home. So they're relying on this teensy little phone screen. Do you have any advice for providers who are working with clients that are in that situation where they're looking at this little tiny box as um, as they're doing mm-hmm. therapy? So if they are using the phone with a video feature, um, they they can definitely have the phone propped up and and the client can, again, do the drawing exercise on paper sort of in their quote unquote real world and then holding it up to the camera and um, and teaching them like how to show all aspects of the the image, not being too close and not being too far. Um, That really helps sort of mastering control um, and and creating, again, pro-social online behavior. Um, And then even with a, a very tiny screen like that, there, there may be a switching where they can't see you, but they're pulling up sort of the notepad or, or the drawing tool um, or screenshotting a, a, a white uh, background and then using the markup tool, like especially with iPhones to, to draw. Um, and then if you are using the phone as an actual phone where you're talking to the youth, again, it's it's using your words to be more more spoken. So saying the silence you're about to hear is me thinking about what you said, or you're about to hear me write down what you said because it was very important. And I don't want to forget it. Um, and then doing more more questions or or um, sort of uh, back and forth or ping ponging. So some of the things that I'll do is um, I'll bring up a horoscope and we'll find out what their birthday is and we'll find out what their zodiac is and we'll read the horoscope and then we will talk about uh, and we'll read what their zodiac says about them and we'll talk about have you ever been in a situation where someone assumes they know everything about you just because they've met someone similar or um, how do you feel about this fortune? Do you think it's it's true or not? What you know? How how is it for you to think that someone can tell your future and that you um, don't have the ability to master craft it? Or do you believe in destiny and fate? You know. And then I, I take in con- cultural considerations. I have a lot of Chinese American families who their Chinese zodiac is very important to them. So we talk about how that's a coping skill for them. How they have a resource to help guide them in their daily daily world and how comforting it is to have a resource. You are full of really good ideas. <laughs> You're full of really good ideas. So so one thing I wanted to ask, do you walk into session basically ready with a, a toolbox, if you will, of various things that you can do with with younger children? Um, and how do you decide what's going to be in your toolbox? You know, is it that you have a stack of books right next to you that you know, I'm thinking about um, the color monster is like one that's about feelings or uh, dinosaurs divorce, you know, these different kids books that I know are on my bookshelf. Um, what are some interventions that you feel like you walk in at the ready so that if things take that turn, you're like, and now we're going to do this? Like, what are your kind of go-tos? I, I always have a movement exercise ready with me. Um, and I, I actually always have at least three interventions in mind for the session. Um, the one dif- larger difference when it comes to online therapy than um, in person is, uh, again, being more directive and, and having to prepare a lot. If you're using worksheets, if you're using coloring pages, you know, you have to decide, am I emailing this to the um, parent so they can print it out? Am I screen sharing so that it can be worked on you know, on the computer in person? Um, Do they even have a printer to be able to print it out? Uh, So you really have to be mindful of the things that you're wanting to do and and be ready. Um, And and if not, you're going to struggle and you're probably going to feel, again, more fatigued because you're overexerting yourself thinking about what do I need to do with this youth versus like, okay, I am going to do and feeling more certain with A, B, and C. Do you always get to C? Do you always get to A? No, but the, the great beautiful thing about it is you don't feel underprepared. Um, so I will have a movement exercise. 
I normally have a link um, if we're doing a, a video session to uh, something that I want them to see or watch. Uh, the beautiful thing now is there are a lot of people reading books. I don't even have to pretend to use voices <laughs> or, or grab my books. We can watch. Um, we can watch Daniel Radcliffe read Harry Potter and he's Harry Potter. Like he's going to have more effective Harry Potter reading than me. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I will find out, you know, again, from the parent ahead of time, what books do you guys have on hand? You know, and, and surprisingly, um, they'll take, they'll take uh, suggestions and we'll, we'll end up having the same book and I'll take turns with the youth reading chapter to chapter and showing picture to picture. Um, so I, I have these things already in mind, a link, a movement exercise, and then um, often a, a, a Q&A or question game, something that um, involves uh, having to answer questions that may sprinkle a few therapeutic ones and then, you know, sprinkle things that they like or, or pop culture references. Um, and oftentimes uh, I will end the session uh, with something that involves either their actual environment, their world, so it's a transition to being back into your personal space, um, or um, uh, something that um, I will do with a little bit older youth and then definitely teens is talking about their online world, having them show me something that they do online or the way that they engage online um, so that uh, they're not tempted to jump onto other programs or check notifications or um, uh, doing things that will disengage from the session because I've already, I've already made it okay. I've already allowed it. So now I'm not, I can't do something deviant against my, my therapist can't be sneaky. Um, and I'm excited. So I'm thinking about, uh, okay, I want to end it with, I want to show them like my Twitter and who I tweeted, or I want to show them my Instagram and who I, I uh, took pictures with or what I liked. Um, it sounds like that's a way for you to more rapidly kind of understand their world and connect with them on a topic that is more likely to engage them. So, and actually I wanted to go kind of into this to adolescent considerations or pre-adolescent considerations. I have heard so many people on social media basically say, I'm sitting there staring at my screen and the kid is just staring at me. And then I see that the you know, the lighting changes and I hear clicks and I don't know what to do. One, um, so transitioning from kind of considerations with the younger children, ideas like uh, doing different crafts and having books and movement exercises, links, things like that. When you look at working with preteens and with adolescents, what are some of your go-tos to try to improve engagement? Because collectively, and maybe you've heard and seen exactly the same thing of like, the, the sullen teen that comes in and sits on your couch with their arms crossed and just kind of stares you down. Suddenly, I mean, that was a challenge to begin with. Now when you're online, it's like, oh no. <laughs> um, so how do you how do you engage adolescents in this process? Especially like we've said, when they're staring at the screen all day doing mm -hmm. school. So uh, I I always do the, the online life. I really do. I have them list off for me all the social media sites that they engage with. Um, and now I've included online school because pretty much all my youth are in online school. Um, and I, I say, okay, we're going to pick one and you're going to, you know, show me some of the things that you've posted or some of the people that follow you or, or what you post. And that's a great way to talk about bullying. It's a great way to normalize blocking people. Youth are very fearful of like the social ramifications of blocking someone um, versus normalizing that that's a healthy boundary setting. And that's the reason it was created to keep you safe. And so it's okay to use that. And you can always unblock block somebody when you start to feel better or more safe, but there are just some people that we don't need around us. So we definitely don't need them online. Um, having them show me their favorite memes, I will have them explain their day in a meme and we will make memes together. Um, I will have them use GIFs to explain um, what their day looked like or their interactions with somebody. 
And sometimes um, if like we're going on Twitter and I know that they have a favorite musical artist, I will have them tweet that person and say like, what were you feeling when you wrote this song? This is how I feel um, when I hear it. Uh, and, and really sharing and talking about, you know, um, there's a certain reason that we're connecting with um, this song or these lyrics or the melody or, or the mood or the vibe or what, you know, um, it, it gets us uh, uh, hyped, it gets us happy, it gets us excited or um, it's melancholy, it's, it's ennui, it's very glamorous to be sad, you know, just talking about um, why they're gravitating towards these things and, and really engaging to how they would understand them and putting words to them. Um, the more that I give them vocabulary, the more that they can uh, adopt that vocabulary, correct me, um, and, and start talking with me and sharing with me. Um, of course, for legal and ethical considerations, I do let the parents know that this is a way that I will be working with their team, uh, that uh, I will have them log into certain sites uh, uh, that they already are engaging with to help protect them, keep them safe, and help give them some guidance on how to navigate it appropriately. Um, I haven't had many parents who are against that because they're already letting their youth doing it. So knowing that uh, an adult is, is helping them do it right, that's, that's comforting. It's in, and it's in my informed consent. And I, I let the youth know that that's something that we're going to do. Um, obviously, there's gaming. I game with my youth a lot. Um, I do pick sites that don't allow logins. Um, it's just a, a link and it's just the two of us. Um, so like Uno, I could play Uno online. If I go to Asteros, it's a um, private server to do Minecraft. I have a lot of youth that um, engage Minecraft with me and I do the house tree person assessment with them. It's an art therapy assessment. Um, I have them create a home and we talk about what makes a home safe, what makes it comforting, um, what do you need to do? Uh, are you going to put a doorknob? Are you gonna put locks? Um, this tree, does it provide shade? Um, you know, uh, we really engage in sort of world building in that aspect. And then I do online journaling. I have um, either we create one together with like a um, word, some other type of workbook, um, or I, I use a site called Monkey uh, and we create an online uh, journal that they have a, a password to. They can put pictures into it. And I even look up prompts. Okay, so um, for this week, this is your prompt to journal. And we open that up and we read what they, what they wrote. Sometimes it's very hard for them to verbalize it to me. So I'll read it to them um, and I'll say, okay, this is what I'm thinking you're trying to say, or this is the, what I'm getting from it. And this makes it okay for them to sort of word vomit without the uncomfortableness of word vomiting to me in person um, and getting a time to reflect. Cause oftentimes it's, yeah, I felt really pissed off that day, but you know, I'm fine now. I, I even forgot that that's what I wrote. So talking about, you know, sort of our emotions and how um, they can be reactive or they can be responsive. Um, you know, right now you needed something to help you be more responsive about the reaction that you just had. Eventually you'll be able to start just being more responsive. You just listed off so many things that are so helpful <laughs> in my mind because I, I don't work very much with younger children, but I do work quite a bit with teens, with young adults. I'm I'm certainly catalog cataloging these ideas in my mind. Um, it sounds like really when we're looking at this transition, it's a matter of therapists putting in a little bit more energy on the front end so that they're ready and they have something to do instead of what we might be used to, which is a teenager walking into the room, sitting down on the couch or the chair. And then we say, you know, so how are you doing? Where would you like to start today? That now it is having, um, I guess, being a little more deliberate as providers to make sure that we're prepared. Mm -hmm. um, with the adolescents, do you recommend the three idea that you said with the interventions of making sure you have three things that you can grab um, 
do you do more with adolescents? Is it the same three that that you recommend providers have um, at the ready? Yeah, I do. I do still engage with a movement exercise with adolescents. Um, it's not as um, like a whole dance. Um, sometimes it's a, like rock, paper, scissors. Um, so just just something to, to help them sort of shift or engage in their body. Um, and I do talk about uh, it, it can be uncomfortable to sit in a chair all day. And most people don't have office chairs in their homes that are comfortable. So so really creating comfort in that chair. Do you need to grab an extra pillow um, and and then other comfort objects like do you need a fidget? A spinner so that you're fidgeting with that and not, you know, going online. Um, do you need tissues because, you know, there's a lot of crying um, or um, you need to blow your nose. And if you do, just do it away so that I can't hear you. <laughs> um, and then I I always have at least an online um, intervention. And I, I do, um, I usually have at least one game. Um, it's very easy to get youth to play games online um, or, or like with their Nintendo Switch, uh, the big hot ticket right now is Animal Crossing and you can invite somebody on your island with a dodo code. They don't have to be your friend. Um, that has been some of the most rewarding work uh, because um, if I have a youth who doesn't get a lot of gameplay simply because their day is really busy or the parent won't allow it, um, for real world accomplishments, if they're, you know, one of their goals is to um, be um, more respectful to their sibling. If I find out from parent that the, you know, the whole week that they um, shared, they weren't um, yelling, they weren't screaming, I give them a gift in the game. And that's a real reward that they wanted that they couldn't earn before. Um, there's um, a world building in there because it's their own private island. I, um, there's QR building with a QR code and you can share an item that you've made. And we talk about self-expression and the things that you get to wear and, you know, how much you can put on uh, your character's body that you, you can at home, you know? And so we, we really um, engage in that aspect. So I always have a game. I always have a small movement exercise. Um, and sometimes depending on um, uh, the, how much control the teen wants, um, or, or how much, uh, they kind of let things happen because of fate or in the moment, you know, whatever vibe quote unquote they're feeling. I do have a, a wheel that I spin that they can click on, um, that has different activities on it that they, they know how to do or, or don't, um, or question activities. And it's like the wheel chose, not me, not you. Um, so now we're going to do what the wheel says. Um, and that's a lot of fun because you can change the wheel into feelings and talk about those feelings. And it's a great way to sort of, um, entice them to talking about things that, uh, maybe they normally avoid because, again, we have to listen to the wheel. These are some very helpful pieces of guidance. Um, one of the questions that I have, when, in your mind, when is online therapy contra contraindicated for a child or adolescent? Um, you know, we know, for example, with uh, couples, one of the one of the rules is if there's active intimate partner violence that we don't engage in therapy. What are some of the primary rules that you see with child and adolescent work, um, especially online, that providers need to keep in mind um, because the rules are different? Uh, so definitely it's the privacy issue. If the family is not respecting privacy, then it, it may need to be a referral out. Um, if it, there are sometimes where uh, mistakes or accidents happen, but if it, you will know when it's a frequent pattern because you are a clinician who notices patterns. Um, and if you have a, a, a sibling that they aren't able to um, keep out of the bedroom, if you have a, um, a parent that needs to always pop in and remind them that they need to put their laundry away or, or do something like that, then uh, and they're not willing to change those behaviors um, to accommodate for the session, that's, that's a no. Um, 
I will I won't do online therapy if the internet bandwidth is is too slow that I can't hear or see the client consistently. And if they're too young or unable to sort of use the phone or do phone sessions, yeah, I, again, I will I will have to refer out. And then for safety issues, um, depending on um, if there's suicidal ideation and if it's active or passive. Um, and, and what the home like, life is like. So if there's actual uh, physical violence occurring in the home, um, I'm less likely to do online therapy. Um, it, it, with the exception of, I specialize in childhood sexual abuse, so I usually do recovery work and treatment work, but that's after um, they've usually uh, gotten the perpetrator out of the home or the perpetrator has no access to them. And then we, we reclaim the space if, if, if it occurred in, in the home setting or in the bedroom setting, and we recreate a safety space for them there. Um, but that's, that's upon very many different levels of uh, assessing. Um, so if there's violence going on in the home, I, I, I will usually discontinue treatment unless everyone else is in treatment and we're able to maintain certain safety protocols. But let's say that a youth does have SI. Usually, if the home is a safe place, and if their bedroom is where they um, sort of recluse themselves to feel safe, um, oftentimes, I'm more likely to get them to comply with a safety plan and using coping skills than I I've noticed in, in person. And it's because they're already in their comfortable space. And they see me as someone that they've invited into their comfortable space, and we are learning uh, about safety. Um, and, and so they're more willing to share with me what are my safety coping skills that I can use, and then who can I reach out to? And then um, they understand that if, if anything happens, you know, I may need to call 911 or I may need to call a parent, guardian. And oftentimes I will have them be more willing to engage in breathing exercises, more willing to engage in journaling. And those SI symptoms subside a lot quicker than I would in, in person because they're getting used to my environment, they're getting used to me, and they're not surrounded by the things that make them feel good. They're not looking at their favorite posters and books. They're not looking at their themed bedding for Marvel comics. Like they're not looking at the things that um, provide them support and peace of mind. Uh, and the more that I can engage with them to engage in their environment for peace of mind, the more that they can see that those objects are transitional. I can bring them in my head or an actual person in other areas or other environments, and I can continue to bring my safety with me. Safety is something that I can hold on to and contain. It's not an imaginary word. It's not you know out in the universe. It's not something that's gifted to certain people. It's something that I can create, cultivate, and keep. I'm you have again, such a unique uh, perspective on this. I know one of the conversations that many of us are having uh, involves not only the increase in depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation, and, and potentially death by suicide in relation to the pandemic, but al also kids that um, previously would have had um, what I call eyes on them, would have had schools, coaches, more aware of what was going on at home relating to physical, um, sexual, emotional abuse. And that's that really is a, a different conversation for a different time. But I'm glad you brought up that part of it of like, when when is this work contraindicated? And when do we need to really keep our eyes and ears open to go back to that primary tenant of our work being focused around trying to help keep a child or adolescent safe? And that sometimes the therapeutic work is going to have to take a, a back seat to that primary issue. 
Well, I, I would say like the, the even more beautiful thing um, is again, you can have them walk around their home and, and sort of share their home world with you. Um, and you can point out things that uh, again, can create more safety. Um, and sometimes I do this with parents as well. Um, they don't think about, you know, hey, that medication is very easily accessible. You should probably lock it up. Um, you know, hey, you know, you have knives out on the counter. You know, again, you might want to put them in a drawer or lock it up, like out of, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and and even, even the youth will start doing that. They'll start pointing out things saying like, you know, uh, I probably could take um, the shaving razor to hurt myself. So it's like, okay, so you want to shave your legs because it, it feels good to have nice smooth legs. You don't want to hurt yourself. Could we let mom give you the shaving razor when it's time to shave and you give it back? You know, it really creates some mastery and skill level and understanding about, you know, how these thoughts are triggering, but really how these thoughts are telling you that, hey, this is a way that you could get hurt and we don't want to be hurt. Um, so we want someone to hear a, a plan of action. The more that you walk around them and address that, the more the parents will start to think of it as, okay, you're telling me that you have found a way to not feel safe. And so you need me to feel safe with you. And so that's, again, that those hands of control. You need me to grab some control from you so that you can feel that you're in control of something else. You're in control of these thoughts because you have less likely an ability to do something. Now, we all know clinically that in the end, if somebody really wants something done, they're going to do it. But someone who's more verbal about these thoughts, someone who's seeking assistance and help, that, that really lets you know that, uh, again, they're wanting to find safety. They're wanting to find comfort. As you're talking about this, I can hear how being, you know, in the home, quote unquote, by doing online therapy, it involves us in the fabric of a family in a very different way. And it sounds like one of your takeaways is is to work with that, to not lean away from it, but lean into it and use it as part of kind of the therapeutic tool um, to affect change. I, I really like that perspective of seeing this as... Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of picturing like Princess Leia in this hologram, like just kind of appearing and that here you are as a therapist, just kind of appearing in their kitchen or in the child's room and that you're there as part of the home now in a way that we wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, absolutely, absolutely. I would really suggest to um, clinicians transitioning online, reach out to your providers who have done in-home therapy you're going to find a lot of similarities in the way that they sort of think and structure because they're in the home, a lot of different safety things that they've thought about. You're going to get some really good ideas and support. That's a great recommendation. Um, Ariel, there are so many more things that we could talk about, but I think you've given us some real nuggets of wisdom to work with some perspectives that we otherwise may not have gotten. Um, how can people learn more about you, get in touch with you? What resources do you recommend? Please share. So um, you can get in touch with me uh, by my email address, which is uh, a landrum l a n d r u m at guidance tt.com. Um, that's also uh, the website guidance tt.com where uh, I blog a lot about um, different things involving treatment therapy and, and different resources to utilize. Um, you will, if you have purchased uh, this podcast for CEs, get access to um, a bunch of interventions that I, I've written out and explained some uh, clinical considerations and, and how to do them um, with uh, children and teens. Um, and then I have an even larger resource on my website um, that's about 100 pages. Uh, as 
as for my common go-tos, uh, I would definitely say on Facebook, join the Teleplay Therapy Resources and Support Group. And Teleplay is with a dash. Um, they, there are so many clinicians in there that are doing online therapy um, and, and providing free resources. I will say that again, free. You just click join. <laughs> um, and then uh, a podcast that I absolutely love is Unspookable, Scary Stories. Uh, Unspookable talks about the different scary stories we've, we've been raised with, we, we, we grow up with and we understand um, and helps normalizes the feelings of fear and, and really talks about um, some of the cultural aspects and, and really helps address uh, scare, the feeling of scariness of the monster under your bed. Um, I use it a lot with um, youth. I use it a lot with families um, and, and it's a great dive. And uh, I would definitely say um, going now on YouTube and typing really any book that you want uh, and you will find someone who's reading it. If you have some uncomfortableness about um, reading books, uh, if you weren't using it uh, before in your practice, um, which I don't know anybody who wouldn't, but if you weren't uh, before, the both of you can listen to uh, someone else um, doing Dr. Seuss books, very easy, um, Harry Potter books, um, lots of Disney books, lots of books about Olaf. So um, uh, I would say that the, those are some really great resources. Wonderful. And another thing that I've been seeing a lot, um, the use of TED Talks um, and finding those kind of videos of, of kind of jumping off points in addition to books and trying to kind of, I guess, steal steal some of the, <laughs> the uh, knowledge from those kind of online resources. And, and also, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, but I imagine the importance of us screening these kind of things ahead of time mm -hmm. to make sure mm -hmm. that safe and they're appropriate. And that goes back to one of the things you said earlier of just kind of the prep work that's involved yeah. with online therapy and needing to be a little bit more directive, more involved mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we're uh, setting and maintaining a frame that is first safe. And then after that, effective and hopefully wonderful for, for provider and client alike. Um, Ariel, thank you. This has been such an enlightening hour to spend with you. Um, we really appreciate you taking this time to share on this topic because in all truth, we're going to be doing this uh, for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And this, um, this transition is helped by people like you that understand how to do this elegantly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's a huge passion of mine. So it's something I could talk on for hours in agnosium. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ariel. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.